Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis, and together we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of many books and DVDs on clicker training horses. But in this podcast, I'm not talking about training. Instead, I'm learning, along with all of you, what horse people can do to help in the climate change crisis. It's been a while since I've published a podcast episode. It's been that kind of a summer. I've had my own small climate change disaster to deal with. While the western part of the country has been dealing with drought, where I am, we've had a summer of monsoon rains. In July, it never seemed to stop raining. Just to give you a sense of how steady the rain has been, Last summer, I was watering my vegetable garden almost every evening. This year, I watered it just three times, and those were all in May when I first put the seedlings in. Other than that, it's been basically raining nonstop, and I haven't had to use the hose at all. The result of all this rain was a flooded basement. So in dealing with everything that had to be done to rescue my poor house. Something had to give, and that something was this podcast. The rains haven't stopped, but summer is slowing down a bit, and I can think once again about the podcast. This episode is a little different from what I normally do. Normally, I have a guest, and we just have a great conversation that goes wherever wherever the rabbit holes take us. But this week, I'm by myself, and what I'm going to do is talk about swallows. It's been a summer filled with swallows for me. Swallows in the barn and swallows in Amazons. I never read Arthur Ransom's children's book series when I was little. I knew of the books. I'd heard the title often enough, but I thought they were something else. They were about something I wasn't interested in. So I, I never read them. And I don't really remember why this summer I decided to listen to his first book, Swallows and Amazons. Maybe it turned up in the list of books the algorithms thought I would be interested in. I don't know. And I don't really remember why I decided to add it to my audio library probably because I thought it was time I knew what was in this book that I had encountered so many times before, but never read. So I listened to it while I did the daily pick of the veggie garden. Swallows and Amazons forever. It was for me a perfect summer read. It was such a great getaway from the pressures of the summer. I was getting away back really into my own childhood and into the days spent wandering down into the gully and, and having adventures of my own. The swallow in the book was a boat. The swallows in the barn are real birds. They discovered the barn two or three years after it was built. The first year, we had one nest. The second year, I think there were three or four, as I remember. Last year, I kept count and we fledged 75 swallows. This year, I started to count, but then lost track of how many nests there were. I'm sure at the end that there were well over 100 
swallows fledged. And that was just from the nests in the barn aisle. I don't try to count the nests that are tucked away in other parts of the property. This year, we had four ways of clutches in the barn. Normally, in past years, we've had a second cohort of eggs being laid, but never a third and then a fourth cohort. The babies in the first cohort hatched just as the monsoon rain started. And from then on, I've been worried about every clutch. When the rains were pouring down, I was worried that the parent birds weren't going to find enough insects in those cold, heavy downpours. But somehow they did. They managed to keep all the babies fed. They all survived and fledged from the nests. That was the first cohort. Then the second cohort of eggs was laid, and the process was repeated all over again, including the monsoon rains. One pair built a nest on top of a duster we use to clean away cobwebs. It was propped up in the back corner of the wash stall. There were so many more likely spots up in the rafters for a nest, but for some reason, these parents chose the duster. When the eggs hatched, I climbed up on a stool every day and took pictures of the babies. They were so very tiny at first, just five little fluffs of down. But my goodness, it was astounding how fast they grow. The rains continued all through July, so again I worried that the parent birds wouldn't be able to bring enough insects for them. But somehow they managed, and the babies very quickly became five not so very tiny hatchlings. The nest itself was tiny, and it just seemed impossible that they were all going to be able to fit and that one or two of them wouldn't be pushed out. But they were really good at clinging on to the edge of that nest with their little feet. I moved all the water buckets out of the wash stall. I didn't want any little birds falling into the water on their first flight from the nest. So everything that could be moved out of the wash stall was moved out. While they were growing, the rest of the fledglings were swooping around the barn in the, and growing stronger by the day. Every morning, the roof line of the composter was the meeting place for the dawn chorus. I would look out and the whole front of the composter would just be a lineup of swallows all singing out their morning song. And then there were just as many swallows swooping overhead. It was quite a sight every morning. At night, the fledglings returned not to their nests, but to the metal conduit that runs the length of the barn aisle. The conduit contains the wiring for the lights, and apparently it is the perfect place to perch at night. When we built the barn, we considered sealing in the ceiling of the barn aisle to make it just a smooth, flat surface. And now that we've had the swallows move in, I'm very glad that we decided to leave the rafters exposed, along with all the conduit piping, because the swallows certainly appreciate it. I remember returning to the barn, especially late one night. I turned on the aisle lights, and there was a line of fledglings perched up on the conduit that was running the length of the barn. I received some very resentful chirps, 
turn off the lights, we're trying to sleep. I thought the July mess would be the last. They have been in previous years. Normally by mid-August, they're all starting to migrate south. But this year, I kept spotting another and then another mother bird starting a new clutch of eggs. Just when I thought the last of the clutches had fledged, I spotted two more nests with mother birds sitting on freshly laid eggs. I did a quick calculation. I had watched the duster nest so closely, I knew how long these eggs would need to hatch, and then I knew how long it would take for the hatchlings to mature enough to leave the nest. They weren't going to be ready to leave that nest before the end of August. And the other swallows were already beginning to leave. But that dawn chorus wasn't nearly as loud, and the sky wasn't filled with the swoop and call of several hundred swallows. By mid-August, the babies in these two last nests were beginning to peek over the edge of the nests. A couple of days later, five not-so-tiny nestlings were jostling for room in their very tiny nest. Every day, I thought, this would be their last day in the nest. And it was for one of the clutches. I saw the first flight of one of those little ones. It flapped its way down the barn aisle and landed without very much grace on one of the horses. It landed right behind his ears. And I have to say what a good soul he was. He didn't even seem to take any notice at all. He could have just flipped his head and sent that little bird flying, but instead he stayed very still. The bird remained there for about 20 minutes before it made its second attempt at flight. It, its second attempt wasn't much better than the first. It fluttered off Fengor's head and landed on the ground in the indoor arena. And there I was, left in a quandary. Should I interfere? Should I leave it alone? Should I move horses so they were, couldn't go into the arena? I didn't want one of them to step accidentally on the little bird. What should I do? I decided in the end to go in and check on it. And just as I stepped into the arena, it flew up onto the rail of the open side of the arena and then flew off across the pasture. And I was left worried that I had startled it and the parent wouldn't be able to find it. And oh, it's just always so hard to know when to interfere. But to my great relief, it was back that evening, roosting with its nestmates up in the rafters. The last nest was easily a week behind this one. Every morning I looked up to see if the nestlings were still there. I was watching the dawn chorus shrink day by day, and I was thinking that these nestlings were going to have a hard start. There wasn't going to be time for them to grow strong and to learn their flying skills before they would need to migrate. I always checked the nests in the morning when I started the barn chores. I looked up and the nest looked empty. Oh good, they had fledged. And then I looked again and no, there was still one bird left in the nest. It bobbed its head up just enough for me to see it. So I kept an eye on it for the next two days and it was still in the nest. 
And apparently I wasn't the only one who was worried about when it was going to leave the nest. One of the parent birds gave it a nudge. The little one had ventured out on the metal conduit for the lights. And the parent bird landed beside it and then sidled closer, pushing the little one along the rail. When it was wedged against the rafter and couldn't go any further, the parent bird started pecking at it. It was as if it was saying, we can't wait for you any longer. You have to leave. So the little one flew from the rail. First flight had been achieved. It was off with the rest of its siblings. That was a couple days ago. This family group is still here. They come back at night to roost in the barn. The other night when Hurricane Ida brought a long night of heavy rain to this area, they were sleeping safely, perched up on the metal conduit. And the following morning, the day after Ida flooded New York City and left this area, upstate New York, drenched in rain, the barnyard was, was just so quiet. There were no fledglings on the composter. There were no swallows swooping through the air. The sky was a beautiful blue, as there often is after hurricane weather. But there were no birds in the air. I wished this last swallow family to fledge a safe journey. And I, I hope they return next year. I worry for these fledglings. They have left it late to begin their journey south. And I worry for all the swallows and all the birds heading off in this changing world. Rachel Carson warned of a silent spring. I do not want to think about a summer without swallows. I do not want to think about a silent barn. In September of 2019, I began the Horses for Future podcast. It's not a podcast about horse training. That's for equosity. In the Horses for Future podcast, I explore what horse people can do to help with the climate change crisis. This summer, this summer the news has been filled with so much sadness, so many terrible events. There was the horrific flooding in Germany, the earthquake in Haiti, fires on the West Coast, the trauma that our departure from Afghanistan has created, the ever-present coronavirus, all of these things have been in the news. And here I am writing about what horse people can do to help in the climate change crisis. It can seem so trivial, so privileged, talking about horses and their care. Individually, what any of us do isn't even a drop in the bucket. But I know that if you add up each tiny contribution, we really can make a difference. Each drop of rain that fell overnight was just that, a drop of rain. But collectively, all that water flooded New York City. This summer, I had my own small climate change crisis. Long story short, I had to have some repairs done on my house. It involved bulldozers, which changed the 
ground around my house, which changed the flow of water around the house. So in July, when the skies opened up with monsoon rains, the result for me was a flooded basement. I've had a wet basement before, but never one where things were literally floating. I now have three sump pumps in the basement, and that seems to be working to stay ahead of the monsoon floods. They've kept the waters at bay, and so far, knock on wood, the basement has stayed relatively dry. After the flood, I spent a good many days carrying everything that was stored in the basement up the stairs and out into the garage. I didn't want to risk having anything sit in that very damp basement and become moldy. So I became very fit and caring. Oh, I won't begin to tell you how much out of that basement. Well, something had to give, and that something was the Horses for Future podcast. I haven't published an episode since spring. There simply weren't enough hours in the day to get it done and deal with the house. I've thought about just letting the podcast slip away. There are so many good podcasts out there, and there are so many people who know so much more about the issues surrounding climate change than I do. But that's actually the point. I've learned so much by doing the podcast, which means I assume others listening to it have also learned a great deal. I learned about mycorrhizal fungi and how important they are for soil health and the role they play in sequestering carbon. I've learned a lot more about biodiversity because of the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. I now look at oak trees completely differently because I know them to be a keystone species. And that's true of goldenrod as well. It's another keystone species and not just a weed that overgrows my horse pastures. Thanks to my journey around the world visiting other horse owners who are also thinking about climate change and better ways to manage their land. I've spent the summer testing different ways of maintaining my own horse pastures. I'm making changes that I hope will benefit my local environment. And what I know is that if we all do the same, it will add up. So I'm going to continue with the podcast. I'll be visiting with friends from around the world. Together, we will make a positive difference for the planet. When I wear my training hat, I talk about constructional training. In that kind of training, we look at what we want our horses to do, and we train those behaviors. The alternative is to focus on the problem and to try to stop what we don't like. I prefer to focus on the desired outcome and to build clean, new behaviors. So I'm not going to think about the disaster that is climate change. Instead, I'm going to focus on the behavior that will create the outcomes that I hope we all desire. A spring that brings the swallows back to all of our barns and a summer that is anything but silent. So in the coming weeks, I'll have some new podcasts for you and I hope you enjoy them. Remember, 
course people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how.